You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 525 of this podcast. It is Wednesday, December 28th, 2022, and we are coming down the home stretch. We are almost there. It is the very last few days of 2022, and then we start a new year. We see what 2023 will hold. But in this episode, we're going to talk about a few things. We won't quite get into New Year's resolutions and such like that. It's not quite time for that. We still need to think about where we're at as 2022 comes to a close. And I have some news stories. I have some current events to get into. And I think it'll be good to not only talk about what's going on in the news, also to discuss a Eric Metaxas event that was held here locally about a month ago that a gentleman from church, Dave Kanashog, invited me to go to. I wish I could have. I would have. Uh, But I did end up watching the video of it when I had a chance over Christmas weekend. And so I want to respond to a few things and also commend a few things that Eric Metaxas had to say. Also, too, besides that, we'll get into the less commented on, less talked about earlier verses in Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs 31, we typically talk about the excellent wife, or in conservative Christian circles anyways, a lot of attention is focused on that. I suppose probably progressive Christian circles, they talk about eh, how do we tolerate this being in our Bibles, but conservative Christian circles like to spend a lot of time, especially the women, discussing the verse 10 and on in Proverbs 31 regarding an excellent wife, who can find one, what's she like, how can you be one too, or get one maybe if you are the guy in question, you're well hearing this from your mother. But before we get into any of that, that track I just played for you, you've no doubt heard it many, many times, particularly If you watch It's a Wonderful Life, like my family and I do, that's the song that they sing at the tail end of It's a Wonderful Life when George Bailey realizes he had a wonderful life after all, and all of the friends and family from around Bedford Falls, and even those who are far away, come to his rescue. $8,000 has been misplaced by Uncle Billy and stolen by Mr. Potter who happens upon it, who finds it. And George is going to be on the hook. He's going to potentially go to jail for a misappropriation of funds or what have you. But they sing this song, Auld Lang Syne. And did you know that Auld Lang Syne actually comes from a Scots poem by Robert Burns? I actually have read a bit of uh, Robert Burns' poetry this past year, But I've been reading some Scots poetry in general this year. My wife and I, when we took a trip to get away to Idaho Springs in the spring, uh, we actually stopped in at a bookstore in Boulder, and we picked up a whole bunch of books. One of them was this fantastic anthology of Scots and Gaelic uh, poetry, or 
poetry, even if it's in English, written by uh, Scottish poets. And Burns's work is featured there prominently. But this poem in particular, I didn't know, was by Robert Burns. And I didn't know that it was Scots, that it was from the Scots. I would have maybe presumed Auld Lang Syne, maybe, is that Latin or something? I don't know. I, I don't know Latin. I didn't learn it. Uh, I occasionally latch on, like most people do, to a particular Latin phrase. But I'll read it for you. I, I just want to read this entire thing in the uh, original Scots verse and see what you think. See, see what you think. We'll see if I can get through this and do it justice. Should auld acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should auld acquaintance be forgot in auld lang syne? For auld lang syne, my jo, for auld lang syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for auld lang syne. And surely ye'll be your paint stop, and surely I'll be mine, and we'll take a cup o' kindness yet for old lang syne. We twa rin about the braise, and pood the gowans fin, but we've wandered money a weary fit sin old lang syne. For old lang syne, my jo, for old lang syne, we'll take a cup o' kindness yet for old lang syne. We twa hae perilt in the brun frae mornin sun till din, but seas between us bred hae rod sin old lang syne. For old lang syne, my jo, for old lang syne, we'll take a cup o' kindness yet for old lang syne. And there's a han, me trusty fir, and geese a han o thine, and will take a rict good willy wacht for old lang syne. For old lang syne, my jo, for old lang syne, will take a cup o kindness yet for old lang syne. And what is this, right? What What is this? <clears throat> there it is, but, but what is it? What did I just say? Could you make out any of that in the Scots? As Scots speakers would sound which, by the way, is my favorite thing about this anthology of Scots poetry that I have on the shelf behind me. I love that it has this Scots pronunciation guide, and you have to just read it and then almost figure out what it actually means by listening, or I, I do anyways. I have to figure out what it means when I say it out loud, and then I realize, oh, okay, <laughs> that's what they're saying. Great. Uh, in the English version, the standard English version, should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot and old lang syne? And by the way, old lang syne, that basically means, uh, you know, for times long past, right? So this is talking about what's gone before us and it's behind us and we're remembering, right? For old lang syne, my dear, for old lang syne, we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne, and surely you'll buy your pint cup, and surely I'll buy mine, and we'll take a cup of kindness yet for old lang syne. We too have run about the hills and picked the daisies fine, but we've wandered many a weary foot since since old lang syne. So that's basically what it is. It's, it's just this reminiscing, right? It's this remembering. It is 
in some respects, I suppose you could say A Journey to the Western Islands of Scotland, which was one of my favorite books read this year by James Boswell and Samuel Johnson, uh, these two friends traveling around in the 18th century and then writing down their observations and what they experienced and what they saw, and then that being compiled together almost like this conversation where the two of them are interrupting each other back and forth, explaining, oh, you know, now this is kind of how it was, or this is what he did, and then I did this, and then this happened, and we went there, and here's where it went from there. And, uh, it, you know, it, it's it's a, a beautiful song, actually, in, in many respects. For one, it's got a haunting kind of meandering beauty to it, but it is about reminiscing. It's about thinking of the times that have passed. And in other words, this is a song (laughs) that fits very appropriately with the end of one year as you are just about to start a new year. So you drink a toast to what has already happened, and then you move on, then you move forward. But speaking of looking back, I actually was looking through my emails, cleaning them out, right before Christmas, and I came across uh, an email from the Billings Gazette, two years into Prohibition, Christmas 1922 was a sober affair. And I'll just read a couple of uh, quotes here, because they are, uh, well, I think they're delightful in some respects, and also they help us get perspective, because what is going to be written 100 years from now, and how are we helping that to uh, be accomplished? And and how do we think about what's being written right now? We should keep perspective here. And I quote from the Billings Gazette, reported 100 years ago, the police are at a loss to know how it is accomplished. It almost seems that Sherwood is able to summon his portion of rum out of thin air at will. <laughs> so you, you have here the bootlegger, you have the smuggling of alcohol, which is prohibited. It's against the law at this point in time. People are not allowed to buy it or sell it or make it or have it. It, it is verboten. And, uh, and so then you've got law enforcement, as we know now, uh, struggling with the task that has been given to them to root this out. This has been put into law. And then as we also know, although they didn't necessarily know at the time that it would go this way, the Prohibition Act ends up getting repealed and stricken. And they say, oh, that was a bad idea. That didn't work out so good. That caused a lot of problems. This is kind of where uh, organized crime comes from. Obviously, you can have organized crime without uh, prohibiting alcohol, but this is one of the big contributing factors in America to the mafia, to the rise of the mafia, to the rise of organized crime that basically because alcohol couldn't be purchased in a legitimate way, in a legal way, you couldn't make it, sell it, buy it, have it, drink it. Only criminals could do those things. Or that is to say, some people decided, all right, you know what? If we're going to be on the wrong side of the law, there's a lot of money to be made because people will pay higher prices to get this stuff on the black market, covertly, quietly, you know, under the table kind of uh, transactions here. And so while we're while we're at it, you know, for one, you've got the criminal types being the ones who are bold enough and, uh, you know, defiant enough to just, you know, keep on and carry on in the shadows. But also, too, at the same time, you have them getting wealthy. And also, too, you have people who are getting 
pulled into that life of crime with regards to the illicit, you know, transactions uh, involving alcohol. Also saying, hey, while we're breaking these laws, let's just go ahead and break all the laws at whenever it seems expedient. So it ended up being a you know a big deal, a much bigger deal than just, hey, let's tell people they're not allowed to have uh, strong drink and beer and wine and spirits and such. It ended up being a much, much bigger deal. Also, too, it led to a major expansion of governmental power because basically you could justify doing almost anything to try and enforce the law here. And it became this kind of this war zone mentality we are more familiar in our day with the war on drugs. Well, before the war on drugs, there was a war on alcohol. It didn't go so well for, uh, I think, any of the sides, although the folks who got rich <laughs> buying and selling and making, uh, they, they might disagree. It, you know, In the moment, in the end, it didn't work out well for anybody. It was just a, a huge mess. But moving on, moving on, uh, we've got a couple of other quotes here. Uh, Whether collecting garbage will prove efficacious in keeping Sherwood sober when the lockup is a total failure remains to be seen, right? So, so here we've got the uh, <laughs> street commissioner, Todd, and I quote, promptly assigned uh, Sherwood to the garbage crew. Uh, who is this Sherwood? Uh, Sherwood is uh, a gentleman who was in the city jail. Uh, Here's from the modern piece, uh, the modern write-up on this from Lorna Thackeray at the Gazette. Despite all the laws against it, despite a legion of local and federal agents marshaled against it, and despite the watchful eye of several shifts of jailers, the intrepid inmate was drunk. So this guy's in jail even, and he's somehow getting access to alcohol, and they don't know how to stop it. He's having a grand old time. He's somehow getting uh, alcohol brought to him, smuggled in. Uh, even right there in jail, which uh, no doubt was frustrating for law enforcement and for the jail keepers. But, uh, you know, that is to say, I mean, you, you, you can make laws, you can have good laws, you can have bad laws. It's quite another thing to enforce laws, whether they're good or they're bad. And this can be a comfort if we have bad laws and they are prohibiting the doing of good things that we ought to do, or they're trying to make that harder, or they're trying to disincentivize it or penalize it what have you. Uh, it can be a comfort also to those who are being told you must do bad things, right? If the law says you must affirm such and such, or you must participate in such and such, you must facilitate such and such, and you know that it's against God's law, it is a comfort to know that it's one thing to make a law, <laughs> it's quite another to enforce it. And where there's a will, there's a way. If we're asked to do, told to do, required to do, contrary to what God has called us to, God has commanded us, then, uh, it, you know, it, it, there will be a way. You, you are still free in a sense. You, you might you know, pay the consequences uh, if you're caught, but there is still a way to serve God and to say, uh, you know, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, for instance, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, not that bootleggers were in the same boat as uh, those Hebrew youths being told to bow down to the statue of the king and worship it, but we can be like them in saying, if we are told to do something that is ungodly, we can still have the freedom to say, our God is able to deliver us. 
Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we still won't bow down. You're still free. Actually, you are still free, even if it's against the law, to obey God and to serve God faithfully. So take heart. Don't despair. Think also of the Hebrew midwives in uh, Egypt when the Pharaoh gives the command and he says that every baby boy is to be killed, to be smothered. Don't let any baby Hebrew boy live because the Egyptians are afraid of the multiplication of the Hebrew people, the Israelites uh, in Egypt. They are you know, breeding, breeding, breeding like rabbits uh, <laughs> relatively you know, compared with the Egyptians. And the Egyptians start to get nervous because it's like, you know, I don't want to keep up with them. I just want them to have fewer children because they're going to overwhelm us. They're going to take over the country at a certain point here. Pharaoh has a solution and his solution is infanticide. It is to murder baby boys in particular. Why baby boys in particular? Not because gender is a social construct, but because it is very important how many boys and what their character is uh, are growing up in a society. It's very important to the direction that that society is going to go. If you have nothing but Hebrew girls, hey, you know what? Hebrew girls are going to marry Egyptian boys when they grow up, and they're going to have Egyptian babies, and they're going to have Egyptian men being the heads of their households and deciding this is what is going to happen. This is how it's going to go. And that was the that was the big idea behind trying to smother Hebrew baby boys. Also, a good example of what I'm talking about with the difference between you know, making a law, giving an order, and also being able to enforce it. And insofar as it was left up to the Hebrew midwives to obey or not obey, they basically decided, let's not. They feared God and they lied, right? They lied, which is to say that it's not always a sin to lie because God blessed them and rewarded them with families of their own. He blessed their households. Surely, if they were sinning, God would not have blessed that, but they were not sinning. When they said, oh, these Hebrew women, they're not like Egyptian women. They give birth before we even get there. And we can't, I mean, it's just, it's out of our hands. We can't can't do what you're telling us to do. Surely Pharaoh must have known that was a lie. And it took a lot of guts, a lot of courage for those midwives to defy the order of Pharaoh. He was the strongest, most powerful leader in the world, arguably, at that time. And yet they did, and they feared God more than they feared the Pharaoh. So should we fear God more than we fear any man, however powerful. But in other news, moving on from prohibition and uh, civil disobedience and laws, <laughs> unenforceable <laughs> if, uh, if there's not an interest in obeying them. Briefly, briefly, let's talk again about something a little more fun, this board game Twilight Imperium, which you know, I was hoping my boys and I would get a chance to play you know, over the Christmas weekend or maybe Monday or maybe yesterday, which was Tuesday. And it just didn't work out that way. It didn't work out for us to play because we had too much else going on. Josiah was feeling sick. There was a lot of cleanup that we needed to do and resting and recovering from Christmas so that more of us didn't get sick. And also too, we just, we had some family business that we had to attend to that made it not a good choice to play a board game instead, particularly with regards to attitudes surrounding, uh, you know, Christmas and the giving of gifts and uh, more to the point how we're relating to each other, how we're talking to each other. Uh, It might come as a shock to some people who have a very, very high opinion of 
my family first and foremost, I trust, uh, and then secondarily me. But we don't always talk kindly to one another. We don't always uh, act in patient ways towards each other. Sometimes we get downright uh, harsh and rude and abrasive. And when that happens, again, what was I saying a minute ago about you know the, the man of the house, the head of the house saying this is how things are going to go. That's going to be true if you are passive as a husband, as a father, and just saying, okay, whatever, you know, let, let, let's be the book of Judges uh, in, in miniature here. Everybody just do what's right in your own eyes. Uh, that's also true if the husband and the father says, hey, listen, guys, we have to have a family meeting. We have to talk about this. And so we did. We have, you know, a, a big dining room table that we gather around when we have a family meeting, everybody to the table. I don't like what I'm hearing in the way you guys are talking to each other or how your mom's having to continually call you guys back to do your chores. We had to talk about that. We had to talk through that. And that's to my way of thinking seemed more imperative than playing Twilight Imperium as much as I wanted to play Twilight Imperium with my boys. But that said, we did make some progress towards the end of getting ready to play Twilight Imperium. And I think that also, that can be a good tool, and I'm hoping to use this game as a tool, not just to help them cultivate strategic thinking and attention span and you know paying attention to something for longer than what would be maybe normal for video games or YouTube videos or something like that. But I'm also hoping that this is a good place for us to practice how we interact with each other, taking turns, being courteous, paying attention, listening, you have to watch closely with a big game with lots of details if you want to know what is going on and what you should do next in order to win. Also, too, with the way that this game is set up, it's not all just fighting. It's also negotiation. It's diplomacy. It's making deals. It's getting along. It's uh, you know trying to make the right impression on your neighbors so that you have uh, a good relationship with your neighbors. And not uh, you know getting attacked and just fighting amongst yourselves while the other guy wins, right? One of the things that we did, actually Eli in particular did, as we were getting the boxes uh, you know opened up and all the pieces broken out and separated in the boxes for the base game fourth edition and also the expansion pack for this game, I, I found some plans for. Uh, organizational boxes that you can print out and use a Cricut Maker 3 to cut out and then glue together uh, basically to put all the pieces into better order in one box instead of having them in multiple boxes. And so I found those uh, plans and I sent them over to my son Eli because he's been watching over my wife's shoulder in how she is doing things with Evelyn in using this Cricut Maker uh, 3, it cuts out various medium, all kinds of things you can cut out with special designs. It's almost like a printer, uh, kind of uh, a printer for cutting material that then you can glue together or, you know, it can be standalone or you can you can print stickers and have them stuck to things with this uh, tool. So then he got to work on uh, trying to puzzle out, okay, how do we get this thing to cut this cardstock at the right depth, or can it do perforations? Because we don't want to cut out the parts that are supposed to be folded. We only want the parts that are supposed to be cut to be cut, and the parts that are supposed to fold, we want perforated. Well, it turned out that 
you need a special implement, a special uh, attachment that you can swap out for the cutter that is just for perforation. And we didn't have it. And that's unfortunate, but uh, there's a, a great little Cricut store on Amazon you can go to and navigate around. And uh, some of their various models, uh, they're not compatible with each other as far as you know, you can't use this cutter on this uh, Cricut device, but you can on this one. So you have to watch for that. But we ordered a whole bunch. They should be here within the next week or two. And uh, that's very exciting. I think it's great to get creative. And also, uh, this is you know kind of a piece with the larger goal of wanting to be independent. I think this is partly how we fulfill what Paul is talking about in Thessalonians when he says, aspire to live a quiet life, working with your hands, minding your own affairs, minding your own business, so that you can walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I think doing things like this, not necessarily that you have to get a Cricut Maker 3 in order to do that, but it can be a potential expression of the idea there in being independent and also working with your hands, right? Having a good reputation, being creative, making good things, making thoughtful gifts for other people, uh, lots there that is, uh, you know, potential for us to learn in the new year. Also, I think it's been a great little thing that we picked up with uh, MyTech High Funds this year. Another thing we've done with the MyTech High Funds is we actually, just as of yesterday, me and the boys, me and the four older boys in particular, built our second MyTech High computer. And I'll explain what I mean by that, what uh, that actually translates to. Last year, with the MyTech High funds, after some asking and some figuring and some calculating and all that, and, and thinking really about what I myself already know, what do I know that I can teach my sons? Also, what could we use more of? Because we have a big family and we are homeschooling. And the way in which we are homeschooling it means that we have so many kids and limited of such and such. Well, the way that we homeschool, it's actually a combination of heavy emphasis on literature and doing written and oral narrations on the one hand, and also on the other hand, uh, doing, let's say, math, for instance, on the computer, or doing various other things of an educational nature on the computer. You know, listening to music or looking at art for art study, or, you know, one other thing, trying to learn to code, learning how to do computer programming and what are these programming languages. And also of a piece with that, you, you have to, I think, look at computer science from a hardware standpoint. How is a computer put together? How does this thing work? What are the pieces and how do they go together to make the thing uh, able to play games, for instance? It's a fun byproduct, but able to watch movies, for instance. That's a fun byproduct, able to do my schoolwork. And, you know, th th there's lots that you can do with a computer, but if you don't know how it works, then if it stops working all of a sudden, it, you're kind of just stuck, right? Like when your car breaks down, but you're not mechanical, you're kind of just stuck and you're going to have to rely on somebody else to either sell you a good car instead of the one you have, if you have the money to buy a new car, uh, or fix the car that you have. If you don't have the money to buy a new car, you also might not have necessarily always the money to trust someone else to repair yours for you. 
And to a lesser extent, computers are the same way where if all of a sudden your stops working and you got to take it to somebody else, you're going to have to take their word for it that this or that is what's wrong with it. And if they start trying to sell you a bunch of hardware, you know, maybe they will sell you some things that you didn't need and they will definitely take a cut. But if you know how this thing goes together, then you can make it run. You can keep it running. And uh, when it comes time to replace it, you can get the right one that you need. So we're building this computer yesterday. And just like last year, here are the parts, guys. Quick refresher. This is what a motherboard looks like. And this is its role. This is a solid state hard drive. And this is its role. This is a CPU, which stands for central processing unit. This is its role. Here's what's different about this CPU versus the one that we built into the computer that we've been using the past year, last year, you know, and, and all that kind of conversation. It was really, really great. And believe it or not, believe it or not, two years in a row, the MyTech High computers that me and my kids have built together have worked and booted up the first time. I kid you not. We built all, you know, we didn't obviously, you know, go out and melt some sand and make some silicon and circuit boards and all that. We didn't build it from scratch in that way, obviously. But you know, we bought the graphics card, the processor, the motherboard, the RAM, the tower, the, you know, what have you. Uh, we bought all the components, put them all together, plugged everything in to the power supply and to the motherboard and all that, fired it up, and it worked. Now, I, I personally, and this was you know, my fault, I accidentally... Uh, didn't plug the power cable for the graphics card into the PSU initially, but we were still able to use the onboard video and you know get the computer up and running that way and install Windows and everything. And then I shut it down and figured out, okay, ah, plug that in. Ah, that now that's working, great. But still, I mean, even with that little oversight on my part, it worked. Everything booted up the first time this year and last year. And now we have two desktop computers in our computer room on the main floor that the kids can share as they need one or the other to do schoolwork. The oldest two boys, they have uh, Ames Community College classes that they take, which so far, the first two classes being behind them now, were very intensive on the computer, involved a lot of getting on the computer to do their writing assignments or discussion posts or watching videos or researching things. So having two really, really handy for how much they need for Ames. Also, all of our kids are doing math with teaching textbooks on the computer. And so it's really great to have additional computers that they can use for that. And then besides, when they're done with their schoolwork for the day, when they're done with their chores for the day, if everybody's getting along, you know, being self-controlled and respectful and considerate of each other, it's an additional computer that they can play a computer game on. And they don't have to wait for their brother or fight over or bicker over whose turn it is and how long has he been on there and I haven't had a turn today and all that kind of stuff. At a certain point, we will be all filled up when it comes to computers. But then also, too, at a certain point, we're going to be you know, to the point where we need to replace some older computers. And even if it's just that, and when our kids grow up and move out, they take one of these computers along with them and they have their own computer right out the gate and we replace it with a new MyTech High computer at that point. Uh, there's a whole lot of nothing wrong with that in my view. So 
you know, it's very exciting. Some folks looking in from the outside might say, man, that's a lot of computers. And it is, right? We've got two desktop computers on the main floor. And then my wife's got a desktop computer in her sewing room. And then I've got my desktop computer in my office. And besides that, we've got, you know, various older machines that are just kind of here and there that at a certain point, uh, we should probably uh, recycle and uh, take and uh, dispose of. But um, in any event, I mean, that that's part of their education. That's part of what these kids, I think, will do well to learn, uh, you know, and, and they can build on it, right? If they don't go anywhere further than just knowing how to uh, work on their own computer, build their own computer when they grow up, that's quite enough. That's all right. If they just understand better how technology uh, makes the world that we live in go round, that's all right. If they go you know, into computer programming or they go into computer science or electronics, uh, or if they do kind of what I do with automation, well, then we're laying a foundation, I think, that could be very lucrative, very profitable for them. And uh, I, I think all the better if everything is being increasingly automated and computerized, it's like when we read in the Bible in Luke 6, 43 through 44 and 45, Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And typically we think of that, you know, if we think of that, we think of that in the words spoken. It's also true of what we write, the written word. And I would argue <laughs> It's true of what we code. If you're a programmer, if you work in automation, you are programming based on what is in your heart, right? Where a man's treasure is, there his heart is also. If you are programming something, it's typically a fairly cost-intensive thing. It costs a lot of money, and you only are going to spend that money to hire a programmer, or you're only going to make that money if you are a programmer because somebody places a high value on this or that process being automated or the software doing the thing, right? The same is also true as we go into the automation uh, of the entire economy and of everything, that if we have programmers who are unscrupulous, people who are doing the programming, who are not ethical, uh, if they don't have good hearts, if they have sinful hearts, wicked hearts, the things they're going to program are going to be uh, in some sense, tainted by that. They're going to be affected by that. This is exactly why the shrugging by big tech anytime there is a complaint from conservatives about censorship and being marginalized and shadow banned online and their content being hidden, links being taken down like Elon Musk says uh, Google's been doing for years. They just take links down that they don't like. They hide things or they will give you a, uh, a kind of a placeholder page if you search for certain things uh, that they don't want you to look for, but they don't have uh, quote unquote legitimate news sources to direct you to. <laughs> they don't want you to go to. Um, you know, it, uh, Joe Rogan's uh, a podcast episode guest, uh, his website, or, or see other links that are interviewing him or talking about what he said. You know, they'll just say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll provide you with links uh, when we have, you know, a more reliable sources, right? And, and so, you know, the algorithm excuse, oh, that's just the algorithms doing that. That wasn't us. 
Uh, that's disingenuous. The algorithm didn't write itself. You wrote the algorithm. Let's be honest. It's just like, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Well, that's not true though. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. And if we are saying hurtful things, well, then we are going to hurt people. And those people might be we ourselves as well. If we are saying good things though, life-giving things, then we are going to benefit ourselves and those we're talking to or those who are hearing us talk, even if we're not talking directly to them. Uh, so also too with programming, if we have hearts that are dedicated to God, that are affected by his grace in Christ, then I think that's going to affect the kind of programming that we do. And it's going to be a more blessed, life-giving kind of programming that we do. Our algorithms are not going to be constantly pointed at like, oh, it's the algorithm's fault. We're going to say, hey, you wrote this code, this program, and it does what we need it to do reliably, efficiently, consistently. Thanks for that, guy. Uh, so that's, you know, that, that's the big idea. I don't know that any of my kids are going to go into programming or computer science or electronics, but nevertheless, they should know how this stuff works. So it's not just, you know, magic and wizardry that, uh, you know, dominates their life behind the scenes. But speaking of working life and providing for a family and the economy and all that, an article was just sent to me by my cousin Brent this morning from hotair.com. And this one, uh, we won't dwell on too long, but it is worth putting on your radar. An article from just yesterday by Jazz Shaw at Hot Air. In many states, this is the title, in many states, welfare and benefits pay more than median income. This is uh, very concerning because essentially for people who don't assign a value to hard work in and of itself, uh, they're going to go where the money is uh, good. And if in their home state, the money is better in welfare than it is in actually participating in the labor market, well, then they're, they're going to live off of welfare and it will be bad for them. It, it'll be good for them in the sense that they will be able to maybe possibly keep up with inflation. But then at the same time, they're driving inflation because they're not producing goods and providing services that uh, help to drive down inflation. If you have more goods and services available relative the money supply, you can drive down inflation. You either have to decrease the money supply or increase the number of goods and services available relative money. That's how inflation works actually. But consider this, 14 states actually pay more in welfare than what the median income is in those states. So for instance, three states actually uh, their benefits add up to more than $100,000 per year. But in 14, it is more than 80,000. 14 states. In three states, it's more than 100,000. Washington, Massachusetts, and New Jersey. Uh, the downside is you'd have to live in those states. And uh, who wants to do that if you don't have to? But consider this. Arkansas, for instance. Arkansas, the benefits for a household you know, a husband, wife, two kids, the benefits may be only $80,000 a year, only $80,000, but the median household income there is $52,000. I mean, and that's not even close. That's significantly, significantly more that you can make being on welfare. So then what is being incentivized? What's being incentivized is drop out of the labor market and collect welfare. I want to make a very practical as well as principled 
argument against that, having been at various times, you know, before I got into oil and gas in my early 20s, having been on, uh, you know, unemployment benefits, uh, food stamps, WIC, PIP, everything that we could get signed up for, we tried to because we just, we, I couldn't get uh, work that paid enough to provide for my family, right? as the Great Recession, so-called, was kicking off is when Lauren and I got married and started having kids, started raising a family. As somebody who has been on government benefits, government assistance, welfare, and my family has depended on that, it is not a good place to be at all, even for a little bit. It's not a happy place to be. It, For one, it, it is not helping you to gain, develop, grow skills. You're not getting experience when you do that, that will lead to bigger and better things in the future. So you might be thinking, oh, okay. Uh, you know, $80,000, $80,000 is what I can get on welfare in Arkansas. I can make more, almost $30,000 more being on welfare for my family per year. How about if instead of $80,000 a year, you were making $100,000 a year or $125,000 a year or $150,000 a year by investing your time, attention, energy, hours in something that is going to lead to a career path and opportunity in the future. That would be much, much better. That would be much wiser. And besides that, uh, you know, the, even if it didn't, right, even if it didn't lead to making more in the long run, than you can on welfare. There's the there's the issue of work ethic. What are you teaching your kids? Are you deriving a sense of fulfillment and accomplishment that you really ought to? That that is good. It's healthy for you to as a man, as a husband, as a father, especially even as a wife and a mother. I think this ends up being a bad thing for families. It's been a very bad thing since uh, LBJ's not so great society programs were rolled out in the first place that you have women actually being rewarded if they don't get married or if they get divorced and sign up for government assistance instead. You know, the, the government, the U.S. government or their state government ends up being their sugar daddy and they can just do whatever. And that's very bad for families. I think even when women are married and their husbands uh, are unemployed and not going and looking for a job, not getting after it, I think this is very bad for marriages, and it does not help them to have stronger marriages that women would accept that their husbands are just collecting unemployment, not trying to get a job, just opting out of the labor market. It's not good for children to look at their father and see him just home all the time, not doing anything, not doing anything productive. It's not good for their respect for their fathers. It's just bad all the way around. And besides that, it emboldens the government to see you as dependent. And when the government sees you as dependent, at any point, they might decide that they can't be depended on or those strings attached mean they want you to tolerate X, Y, and Z or else lose your benefits or you must affirm or endorse or participate in such and such or else you'll, you'll lose your benefits. And when that gets to be the circumstance for a sizable portion of the population, we are not actually citizens anymore of our country, we become slaves. And it's a that's a bad state of affairs. That's really how 
the children of Israel became slaves in Egypt and stayed slaves for hundreds of years because Egypt stored up grain and the surrounding peoples and nations didn't have grain. And so people come to Egypt and they become dependent on Egypt's grain. And next thing you know, uh, you've got the Pharaoh saying uh, to the midwives, I don't think that these Hebrews need to have baby boys. Take care of that. And if you're not in a place to be delivered by God's hand at a certain point, uh, it's a very sorry state of affairs. That, that is not a good place to be. It might seem like it's a free lunch. It is not. There is no free lunch. You will pay for it one way or the other. So you might as well, again, going back to what Paul says in Thessalonians, strive to work with your hands. Mind your own business. Be dependent on no one. Walking properly before outsiders. You might as well do that because actually that's far more rewarding, far safer, far wiser. But moving on, speaking of taxes, government, uh, (laughs) this big omnibus bill that was passed right before Christmas by the Senate and the House. Uh, It's a ridiculous amount of money. It's a ridiculous amount of money that was spent that we don't have. Uh, The United States government does not have it. They will print it. And when they print it, they will continue to devalue yours and my money. If it's savings or if it's wages, our money will be worth less and less. And the available goods is not going to be increasing by as much money as they are printing. So our money will be worth less. And therefore, all of the goods we would need to buy with our money will cost more and more. But nevertheless, Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky points out that the National Science Foundation granted $118,971 to see, and I quote from the post-millennials tweet here, on Christmas Day, Merry Christmas, uh, to see if the Marvel villain Thanos really could snap his fingers while wearing the fictional Infinity Gauntlet. I kid you not, $118,000, almost $119,000 of our monies went to trying to test whether the Infinity Gauntlet would actually render one able to snap their fingers. You can't make this stuff up. You can't make this stuff up. This is just absurd. It's irresponsible. Uh, It is uh, a, a display of contempt for us that this is the way of things. And again, this is another reason to not be on welfare because you need to not be dependent on a government uh, for voting itself largesse to fund things like this. I mean, just imagine, here's how to put it in perspective. Don't think of this relative $1.7 trillion in spending in that omnibus bill. Think of this relative how much money your household made last year. How far would $119,000 have gone for you and your family compared with seeing if the Infinity Gauntlet could work the way that it did in the movies, right? How how much farther would it have gone for you and your family in paying off debts or purchasing a new vehicle or buying a home or, <laughs> you know, fill in the blank, you know, I for... Me, myself, uh, that that $119,000, that would have gone a long, long ways in the past year. And I'm sure in the next year, it wouldn't go quite as far, given how our government is spending money. But still, still, 
Uh, this is just, it's, this is clown world. This is absurd that our money would be spent in this way. It's irresponsible. It has to stop. But my concern would be that we don't have the will to stop it. Now, speaking of the will to stop it or to say no, Winsome Ministries published on Rumble a video, uh, it's fairly long, of Eric Metaxas speaking at a church here in Fort Collins, Timberline Church. Uh, It is a Pentecostal outlet affiliated with the Assemblies of God. And I had a chance to go. I had a chance to attend. I didn't end up going because we had biblical training group scheduled that night. But my friend and uh, esteemed brother, Dave Kanashog, he attended, he went, told me about it, and then also was so kind as to send me a link to the video of the entire event. I'll throw a link in. You can check it out for yourself if you're interested. It's from uh, as of tomorrow, actually, one month ago. I, I would say one month ago today, but that would only apply tomorrow. But I just want to really emphasize how much I appreciate Eric Metaxas in two books in particular he's written, one being his biography of the famous German reformer Martin Luther, the other being his biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor and ultimately martyr who conspired with others to plot the assassination of Adolf Hitler because those involved in the conspiracy, the plot, a good kind of conspiracy for a change, uh, recognized the existential threat that Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party posed to the people of Germany and also the surrounding countries, but in particular, the German people and the Jews in Germany and sincere Christians in Germany, and all political opponents in Germany, and the mentally ill, the unwell in Germany. Basically, anyone who was not with the Nazis might potentially find themselves at first merely pushed out of the church, pushed out of the colleges, pushed out of being able to hold office of any kind or own a business even, subsequently rounded up and put in concentration camps because they couldn't even be tolerated in broader society. They wouldn't even even be tolerated in communities to live next door to or up the street from the folks Hitler and the Nazis saw as worth letting live. Ultimately, the horror of the Holocaust as we know it, and don't you dare deny that it happened, the horror that we know of as the Holocaust Bonhoeffer saw coming and recognized as evil before it got to that level. He didn't need the proof of, after the fact, millions of Jews having been starved to death, shot, beaten, tortured, sent to gas chambers, buried in mass graves, incinerated. He didn't need that to have already happened for him to recognize this is evil. He recognized at its face, this is evil, what they are claiming, what they are saying, what they are promising, what they are threatening. And he couldn't, in good conscience, be silent 
or passive in its face. And so Metaxas, who I used to be Facebook friends with, by the way, <laughs> before he hit the big time, uh, I used to be Facebook friends with him and also Vody Bakum and uh, also L.A. Marzulli. There's a trio of diverse characters. But nevertheless, nevertheless, I deleted my Facebook. Now we're no longer Facebook friends. And uh, I don't even think you can find him, like his personal account, if he still has one. I don't even think you can find it uh, by doing a, a search on Facebook. You just find his public uh, profile as a public figure. But Metaxas talks about this in his recent message at this church in Fort Collins. And he points out that very similar to Germany, right before the Nazis took over, America now has a very cheap view of grace. We don't understand grace, even when we claim to be Christians. We don't understand grace. We don't know what it is, really. We think that it's a permission slip to do whatever we want or not do whatever we don't want to do. We don't think of grace as being a conduit for opportunities to forgive and be forgiven towards the end of obedience, faithfulness. We see it as an excuse to not be obedient, to not require repentance and confession of sins, to not rebuke. Now, one of the most disillusioning, frustrating things I have found in my 36 years thus far is in the American church, when I have been in a position of having some authority and being recognized as having some authority, not that I had been given the key to the city or anything, but I had been affirmed for all to hear, applauded again and again. It has amazed me and disheartened me and frustrated me that if with that acclaim, you then contradict, challenge, correct, rebuke someone who you're not supposed to, they're off limits, they're a big tither, a big giver, a big time volunteer, a diversity pick for this or that ministry. They've been at that church for a long, long time. If you do that, then all of a sudden you get static because you were only being given clout, authority, standing really to affirm, not to correct, not to confront, not to rebuke, not to call for repentance. And so even in the church, Metaxas is right, even in the church, we don't know who Jesus is. We talk about Jesus. We like the idea of Jesus all too often, but we don't know Jesus. We have a form of godliness in far too many American churches, all the while denying its power. We pick one, fearing God, fearing man, and we pick the wrong one. We choose to fear man. We judge with partiality. And the phrase, and I'll never forget this phrase, as long as I live, the phrase that I was told again and again in one particular local church situation when I was trying to bring biblical grace <laughs> in the form of a corrective and uh, an invitation to repentance, the phrase that met me, and this is not the church we're at now, but this is a church that we left in very large part because of this situation, the phrase that I was 
myself rebuked with was pour some grace on it. Now we just need to pour grace on that. No, no, hold on. For one thing, grace is not something that you have in a pitcher that you just pour out like glasses of lemonade. If first and foremost, our sin problem is a sin against God problem, not first and foremost, a sin against one another problem, then what does God say about grace, mercy, forgiveness, restoration? It's not unconditional. It is costly. Again, Metaxas is right. Grace is costly. It requires writing off a debt. But when there is no sorrow, there is no godly sorrow, there's no contrite spirit, broken heart, asking for forgiveness, admitting wrongdoing, confessing sin, asking for forgiveness, then what you're not giving is forgiveness. What you are giving is license. You're affirming and enabling wickedness. And actually, it does start in the church. It starts with us not correcting, confronting, rebuking, exhorting. Great. Exhort, exhort, exhort. But not correcting, not rebuking. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for four things. And some of those four things, the American church does not want to do with God's word. They don't want to do it internally in their own homes. They don't want to do it when they look in the mirror. They don't want to do it in their local church. They definitely don't want to do it in broader society. And until we learn how to do it, when we look in the mirror, when we're having a family meeting around the table in our own churches, until we learn how to do it as Christians, something Metaxas says that is controversial, maybe uncomfortable, to put it mildly, uh, that if you're not going to obey, if you're not going to believe, if you're not going to follow God, maybe don't read his word. It could be a dangerous thing that gets twisted and you twist and is twisted on you. If we don't know Jesus, we don't want to know Jesus. We don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to trust in Jesus. We don't want to obey Jesus. We don't want to be like Jesus. Then maybe just skip the pretense. Maybe don't even read it, but don't read it and then say, oh yes, this is exactly what it means. It means that I affirm either by my silence or by actively applauding, actively congratulating, actively encouraging wickedness, what God says he hates, what God says to repent of. We are actually opposed to God in that case. God will not find us innocent or guiltless. Rescue those who are being led away to the slaughter. Hold back those who are being taken away to death. And what does it say? Does not he who is in heaven know? If you say, we didn't know. We didn't know. We had no way of knowing that the Nazis were doing what they were doing to the Jews just a few blocks from my house. We had no way of knowing that this sin was going on in our neighborhood, in our community, in our state, in our nation. Does not he who sits in heaven know? Of course he knows. He's not fooled. He's not deceived. It did not escape his notice. So God bless and protect Eric Metaxas. Let me just say that. I haven't quite gotten to his book, Letter to the American Church, just yet. I have a copy of it. Thank you again to Dave Knoshog, which I would like to be reading here with the days off I've got coming up for the New Year's weekend. 
I'd like to be reading through this and seeing what he has to say. But I appreciate his naming publicly Andy Stanley, not in it to win it. He said Zondervan sent him Andy Stanley's book right about the time that he was ready to publish Letter to the American Church. And he said he couldn't stand it. He hated it. He had to force himself to read it because the whole premise of this book is let's not get political. Well, then I agree with Metaxas. If you're not going to get political in the ways that you mean getting political, as in you're not going to speak on these issues, you're not going to call for repentance, you're not going to preach and teach against this sin, this wickedness, you're not going to rebuke it, well, then you're not going to get biblical. You're not going to get <laughs> obedience yourself. <laughs> you are called to it. You're commanded. It's not, it's not optional. It's not pickles on your hamburger. This is imperative. This is what we're still here for. I, I feel sorry for uh, Eric flying in from New York, where he lives most of the time, being tired and also adjusting to the altitude and not feeling so great as a result. I think it's easy for us who live in this part of the country uh, year round to forget that we've grown you know, accustomed to the altitude, to the dryness of the air actually also too. So that's another thing. Those two things together. If you come to Colorado from elsewhere in the country where you're closer to sea level and where the air is more humid, has more moisture in it, make sure you are drinking plenty of water, especially if you go up into the mountains. Like, Be really careful about that. You won't feel so good otherwise. Drink plenty of water. But speaking of the weather, the climate, there's a little video here I want to play some audio from. And you may have seen it already, but I'm going to play some audio from it because uh, I have some thoughts. I have... Uh, Something to say with regards to this sports reporter from Iowa who went viral, as they say, as the kids say these days, for his uh, complaining uh, as he was sent out by his TV station to report on the winter storm. That's not what he typically does. He wasn't thrilled about it very clearly, wasn't happy about it also made clear his complaints and uh, objections and his unhappiness, his displeasure repeatedly as they went back to him again and again <laughs> to report from outside on the weather. Uh, here is some audio. Take a listen, and then I'll tell you how I think this relates. Mark, how are you feeling out there? Uh, again, uh, the same way I felt about eight minutes ago when you asked me that same question, right? I normally do sports. Uh, everything is canceled here for the next couple of days. So what better time to ask the sports guy to come in about five hours normally uh, earlier than he would normally wake up, go stand out in the wind and the snow and the cold and tell other people not to do the same. I didn't even realize that there was a 3.30 also in the morning. Uh, until today. It's absolutely uh, fantastic, Ryan. You know, I I'm used to these evening shows that are only 30 minutes long, and generally on those shows, I'm inside. So uh, this is a really long show. Tune in for the next couple hours to watch me progressively get crankier 
and crankier. How do I get that uh, Storm Chaser 7 duty? I, I feel like Clint got the uh, better end of that deal. You know, that thing's heated. Um, the outdoors currently is not heated. Well, I'll tell you what, Ryan, I've, I've got good news and, and I've got bad news. The, the good news is that I can still feel my face right now. The bad news is I kind of wish I couldn't. Can I go back? To my regular job I, i'm pretty sure ryan that you guys added an extra hour to this show just because somebody likes torturing me because compared to two and a half hours ago it is just getting colder and colder live in waterloo for the last time this morning thankfully i'm mark woodley new seven kwwl <laughs> uh, that's terrible <laughs> mark woodley is this guy's name again not typically the weatherman typically the sports reporter so who knows what happened to the normal uh weather guy who would be asked to go out there and do this kind of reporting in any event the sports guy is not having it and maybe he's upset about other things maybe that's part of why he was sent out he's complaining about other things and griping and they say okay you know what you're gonna be that way I'll show you and we'll send you out, you know, right around Christmas time. Uh, maybe it was a publicity stunt because this is actually quite funny and it reminds people of uh, Bruce Almighty. I don't know. In any event, assuming that this is legit and this guy is serious and that all of his complaining was not planned, it was just honest and he's just over it. For one, I don't think this is what our aspirational model should be. This is not what we should be gunning for and trying to be like where we complain and we groan and just everything is awful, even the weather, and we're just bitter about it, particularly in public without any kind of embarrassment, without any kind of uh, hesitancy whatsoever. You know, I think this is the kind of complaint that should be leveled privately. And if it's bad enough that you're going to get on air and complain for everybody, for the whole world to hear and see, then maybe just maybe you need to find a different job, go somewhere else or, or tell them, Hey, you know what? If you make me do this, I am going to go find another job. I, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I want to do. I don't like it or just do it or just, just leave. Just say, okay, you know what? I quit. Uh, if you're going to stay there, if you're planning on staying there and not just quitting and going and finding a new job, then have a good attitude. Don't complain. Don't groan. Don't grumble. Because what are you doing, right? You're not changing your circumstance. You're just actually making it more miserable unless you're doing this for comedic effect. But I, again, I'm just going to work off the assumption this is genuine. This is sincere. And this guy really did not want to be there. It's not so good that we would become people who are marked by complaint and grumbling and groaning. And if you are a regular listener to my show, you may say at this point, hey, wait a second, Garrett, aren't you always complaining? Aren't you constantly complaining about things that aren't the way that they should be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And to that, I will say sometimes, yes. And I also should not do that. Other times, no, and here's where I think the distinction is. It's one thing to say we have a problem and we need to do something about it. For instance, we need to stop our behaviors that are bad behaviors 
and we need to do good things instead of doing the bad things. And we need to make it right with people that maybe we've done bad things towards or we haven't done the, the right thing by. You know, if we have a problem that is human behavior or the ways that we organize ourselves, the ways that we're making decisions together, also known as politics, then to only complain about it is not so good. There has to be some kind of a or else. Uh, otherwise, people are going to tune you out and they're going to say, all right, you know what? Forget this. So come up with solutions as well. Don't just say, here's a problem and there's a problem and there's a problem and there's a problem. Come up with solutions. Otherwise, maybe just keep quiet and instead of putting your attention and energy into griping, at least do your best with what is good to do, what is right to do, while somebody else is trying to come up with solutions. But if you're filling the air with complaining and groaning, for one, you are not coming up with solutions. You're not sharing solutions. So what good is that? But for two, you might be taking all the air out of the room for somebody else who would be coming up with solutions. And don't do that, right? You're, you're actually hurting yourself in that case. And more, you know, actually, I think more importantly, because like I was saying before, our sin problem is actually sinning against God, first and foremost, not sinning against one another. Insofar as God has put us in various circumstances, even when they are unpleasant, uncomfortable, regrettable, disappointing, God still has us in those circumstances for a reason, for a purpose. It is not for no purpose. And if we complain, if we grumble to no effect without looking for solutions, without calling people to repentance, where it's appropriate to. In defense of Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, where it is correct, and it, it is a corrective actually for people like me sometimes, we need to be very careful what we are communicating about God, what truth claims, what truth statements we're making about God, if all we do is complain. So a for instance might be, and I won't say which of my children this was, but one of my children complained when we were opening stockings because, and I'll say he, because that doesn't quite narrow it down. We only have one daughter so far, God willing, you know, maybe we have more, but we have one daughter, six sons, who it could potentially be Andrew can't speak. So he's ruled out. This son of mine complained loudly at some of the items in his stocking. Oh, I didn't want this. I didn't want this. I don't like that. I wanted that instead. I wanted this other thing. And I had to pull him aside. I had to pull him into the other room and say, hey, listen, like, that's not a good attitude. That's not a, an appropriate attitude. Okay. We don't need to be complaining about gifts we've received, even if they're not the gifts we wanted or expected or asked for. Let's change our attitude here. And if I'm in his shoes, I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, but, right? And yet I know as a 36-year-old man, instead of a child anymore, every moment I'm complaining about gifts God has given, opportunities God has given, even, yes, even threats that have to be faced, challenges that have to be tackled, every moment I am complaining only to no effect, I am missing some opportunity that God has given me to 
demonstrate faithfulness and to serve him and to honor him. And therefore, I should be thanking God in all circumstances and looking for what is the purpose that he has put me in these circumstances or given me this thing or not put me in other circumstances or not given me something. And so I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to, I don't mean to pick on this Mark Woodley too, too much. Yeah. It's, you know, being outside when it's cold, not so fun being outside when it's cold and the weather's bad and it's early, early, early in the morning when most people would be asleep, you would be asleep most of the time. Not so fun. Right. Also though, is there opportunity here? And are you catching it if there is, when all you do is complain and complain loudly for all to hear? I would say probably not. Probably you are not, uh, except in our day and age, I, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are like, oh man, it's so funny. And it's, you know, let's make a t-shirt out of what he's saying. And to that, I would say, maybe that is a sign of the times that this would be rewarded and applauded because it affirms our own bad attitudes. Just a thought. In other news, King Charles evicts Prince Andrew from Buckingham Palace, reporting by Brandon Dre over at the Daily Wire. Prince Andrew, British royalty, in trouble, scandal, controversy over his close relationship with uh, Jeffrey Epstein, who did not kill himself, by the way. Prince Andrew is not welcome at Buckingham Palace. He will have to make his own way, and the family, led by King Charles, is rather embarrassed. And uh, they should be. They should be. There should be more accountability than just you're not allowed to come by the palace if he broke the law, if he committed crimes, if he did evil things. He should have more accountability, I dare say, than just you're not allowed around the palace anymore. But at least they're not just carrying on like there's no consequences whatsoever. Everything's above board. Uh, And yet... To say you're not allowed, you're not allowed, you're not welcome around the palace. Uh, it's um, basically to say either a the mere appearance of impropriety is enough for us to distance whether you're guilty or you're innocent, or you are guilty and we know you're guilty, but this is as much as we're going to permit to have done about it. And I think in the latter case, if that's what it is, well then you are setting a bad example as far as justice and how far justice goes in your country, in your kingdom, however much of a figurehead you are, well, there's a symbolism to this that is unfortunate and I think a bad example to set. If he's innocent though, and you've disgraced him, you've thrown him out, regardless of his innocence, that is also a bad example to set. Either way, both possibilities here are not so good. And a king has a responsibility to do better than this, I think, one way or the other, whether there's guilt or there's innocence. In other news, speaking of the kingdom of Great Britain, the United Kingdom, your arrest is necessary. Woman arrested for silent prayer, antisocial behavior outside abortion clinic, reporting by Andrew Chapados over at the Blaze Media from December 22nd, 2022. This in Birmingham, England, according to the Daily Signal, has to do with an Isabel Vohan Spruce. She is confronted by police standing 
in front of a abortion clinic all by herself. And when they confront her, they warn her about her rights and then ask her why she's there. And here's the quotes. I'll read them for you. What are you here for today? Why here of all places? And is you standing here part of a protest? That was the officer's question. All she says is no. And then the officer asks, are you praying? And her answer is, I might be praying in my head. The response then is chilling when the officer, the policeman, asks her to come to the police station so they can ask her some questions about other quote-unquote incidents, to which she declines. They ask her if she will come willingly, and she says no, I'm sure very politely, and then they arrest her for, and I quote, antisocial behavior. According to the government website, this report from The Blaze states, the city of Birmingham, England, regards as antisocial behavior, quote, behavior which has caused or is likely to cause you harassment, alarm, or distress. So the abortion clinic employees or uh, customers, clients, whatever you call people who go and seek the services of an abortion clinic, they were being caused or were likely to cause harassment, alarm, or distress to her, I would say. And so why is the abortion clinic and the folks who are patronizing the abortion clinic not similarly under arrest? Uh, why, why are they not under arrest for antisocial behavior? They've clearly caused this woman who was silently praying outside the abortion clinic, they've obviously caused her alarm or distress, myself as well, many sincere Christians in the West. In fact, I would say even further, all Christians in the West or anywhere for that matter are alarmed and distressed by abortion since it is murder. It is the shedding of innocent blood. But no one is arrested for our alarm or distress or for the alarm or distress of those unborn children who are murdered. Something to ponder as we consider the direction of the UK and the US moving forward. Speaking of health, healthcare, government policy, and even just praying silently in your head outside of an abortion clinic in Birmingham. New Twitter files show company suppressed COVID information from doctors and experts reporting the day after Christmas by Jack Phillips over at the Epoch Times. This due to pressure from federal officials to moderate content regarding COVID-19, including, but not limited to, blocking a post, and I quote, by a former Harvard scientist who offered critical feedback against COVID-19 vaccines in 2021, according to the latest installment of the Elon Musk-endorsed Twitter files posted on the morning of December 26th, end quote. We knew this was happening. Folks like me knew this was happening. Now that we have the evidence, now that it's being proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, the folks who want nothing so much as to not get in trouble and to please themselves and serve themselves, even when they call themselves conservatives, those folks shrug and say, yeah, but what do you do? 
And I would refer you back again to Eric Metaxas. What you do is you call for repentance. That's what you do. What you do is you refuse to affirm these things, go along with them, or be silent about them. That's what you do. Similar reporting from December 26th by Dylan Burroughs over the Daily Wire regarding the latest installment of the Twitter files has a tweet highlighted from a David Zweig thread, the Twitter files, how Twitter rigged the COVID debate. And there's three bullet points here. One, by censoring info that was true, but inconvenient to U.S. government policy, by discrediting doctors and other experts who disagreed, by suppressing ordinary users, including some sharing the CDC's own data. And this is where the so-called conspiracy theorists are proven correct, at least on this one. You got this one right. It was a conspiracy behind closed doors to silence you, to shut you up, even when it turns out what you were saying was true, even when it turned out you were citing the CDC's own data. And the big question to ask, the big question to ask here and with other such situations is when the U.S. government censors its own data being shared by ordinary users or experts, either way, when the U.S. government censors ordinary users and experts communicating info that is true, it was true, it is true, it will continue on being true if it was and it is only because it was inconvenient to U.S. government policy, then why is U.S. government policy not correctable? Only this. There is no appetite for being corrected, period, full stop. And that is a very dangerous place to be when the policy is not correctable and when you will be silenced if you try to correct it. It is not correct. We know that it's not correct. It doesn't matter. That is a big problem. But again, it goes back to our theology. Do we fear God? Do we regard these things as sins against God first and foremost, and then subsequently sins against one another? Is there an ability to call for repentance on the one hand, or is that shushed as being unchristian? We prefer cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer would say, unfortunately. Now, lastly, and this will be the very last thing in this episode, and then I got to run. Proverbs 31. I talked about Proverbs 31 in yesterday's episode of all things in relation to the Springfield Armory Hellcat CCW handgun I just got my wife for Christmas. Also, Horizon Forbidden West, this really popular, beautiful game featuring a strong female character as the lead, which I bought our older boys for Christmas for the PS5, and also to a pink Xbox controller for our daughter Evelyn, which I believe our son Enoch picked out for her very sweetly. Proverbs 31, talking about the woman who fears the Lord, that selection gets talked about quite a lot. That's where we, in my experience, focus most of our attention when we go to Proverbs 31, the very last chapter in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament of our Bibles. But the first nine verses are also very interesting. And this is what I want to leave you with, is reading these first nine verses of chapter 31 of Proverbs, and also drawing out a few of them in particular that are of interest with regards to current events. Starting in verse 
1. The words of King Linwell, an oracle that his mother taught him. What are you doing, my son? What are you doing, son of my womb? What are you doing, son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. And there you have it. And there you have it. And that right there, ladies and gentlemen, is the lead-in to a description by the same, the words of King Lemuel, which he learned from his mother, regarding the excellent wife or the woman who fears the Lord. These first nine verses are the lead-in to talking about this noble, virtuous, godly woman who is clothed in strength, whose husband's heart trusts in her, who gets up before it is daylight, while it is yet night. And I don't see anything in here about her complaining on air for the whole world to hear that she didn't even know there was a three o'clock in the morning. But pay attention to the context, the setup, the open here in Proverbs 31. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? When you see a triplicate like this in the Bible, it is supposed to get your attention. <laughs> it is an imperative. It is emphasis by way of repetition. What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? And I think here of conversations with my children. When I walk into the room and I see craziness, I see shenanigans, when I see them misbehaving or getting into something they're not supposed to get into or taking a ridiculous risk that they should not be taking. My boys always, never my daughter, it seems, because boys are chock full of testosterone and tomfoolery. But what are you doing, right? What are you doing? That is a question that I ask my sons very often. What are you doing? And here we have the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. <laughs> What are you doing <laughs> in relation to what? In relation to what? Not, you know, trying to get your brother to jump off the roof with, uh, you know, bed sheets in his arms like he's going to glide down to the ground Batman style if he tries it, you know, not, not getting into the chocolate morsels that literally have not made it out of the grocery bag, but they were set on the floor as we're bringing stuff in, and we turned our back on the four-year-old who thought those morsels looked rather delicious, and now they're all over his face and the floor and not so much in the bag anymore. What are you doing? Here is asked in relation to giving your strength to women, for one, also giving yourself to drink. And both alike, very similar, are a way to cloud your judgment and to lose your head and to not be making good judgment 
type decisions. If you don't watch your step, if you don't be careful, if you don't keep in mind justice, righteousness, your responsibilities. The key imperative thing here, whether we're talking in relation to women or in relation to drink, is you need to remember, you need to keep in mind, you need to focus on and prioritize doing what you're supposed to be doing. When you speak, it needs to be true. When you act, it needs to be just. It needs to be right. And not just in the abstract, not in a totally general, generic sense. Specifically, in relation to those who are destitute, or who are poor, or who are needy. Open your mouth, verse 9. Judge righteously. Defend the rights. So this is to say, by the way, for those who argue the point, there is such a thing as rights in the Bible. We see rights in the Bible. And when you see other people's rights being trampled on, you are supposed to open your mouth, not keep quiet, not keep silent. And if your judgment is clouded because you've been imbibing too much, or you're so worried about impressing that girl over there, that woman, that chick, you will forget your duty before God. Don't forget. Don't forget. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, his mother told him, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. There again, we see rights. Verse 5, rights. Verse 9, rights. Verse 8, open your mouth for the mute. For those who can't speak for themselves, speak up. For those who cannot speak in their own defense, open your mouth. Talk. Argue their case. For the rights of all who are destitute. All. All means all. So if you're Dietrich Bonhoeffer and those who are destitute and being made destitute are the Jews, you don't get the option to just pour grace on it and just focus on the gospel and just over-spiritualize things. You don't get that option. God does not grant that to you. And Eric Metaxas is right. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right. And Martin Luther was right. And if they had not opened their mouths, if they were not still opening their mouths, down through the ages, down through the centuries, well then, we would not remember them. But I think we will. And I think God, more importantly, will and does and has. It is not for kings to forget. But we ought to, for one, remember those who are poor, needy, destitute, miserable, having their rights abused, taken away. We must, before God, we must speak up on their behalf and call for repentance and restoration and reconciliation, but on the basis of repentance and not pretend we had no knowledge. We didn't know. We didn't know. No. He who sits in heaven knows. That excuse will not fly with God. Grace here is that you have time to change your bad behavior, change your wicked ways, repent and turn from them and ask forgiveness and seek peace and pursue it first with God, then your fellow man, but not with your fellow man first at the expense of obedience to God, which is where so many of us are tragically at. Note here, in context, in context, when it follows 
from that opening, the woman who fears the Lord. This is lest anyone suppose that the Bible or King Lemuel's mother, who was herself a woman, I'm sure, is anti-woman. No, no. You find yourself a excellent wife like the woman in Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31. Marry that woman. <laughs> Lock it down. But this is to say as well, if you are a woman, be this kind of woman. Aspire to being this kind of a woman. Hardworking, wise, decisive, profitable in your endeavors, in your work, in your decisions. Resourceful, creative, considerate, thoughtful, kind in your teaching and in what you say. Kind in what you do, in looking out for other people. And are they clothed properly? Are they warm? Do they have enough to eat? Do they have someplace to get out of the weather? A woman who fears Yahweh is to be praised. And the heart of her husband trusts in her. And her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. This is what we should be aspiring to. And this is where it cannot just stay. It has to start in the home. It has to start in our own hearts. It has to start when we look in the mirror, but it it can't just stay there. It has to ripple out to our family, to our churches, to our neighborhood, to our community, to our city, to our nation. Or else what is it? Faith without works is dead. That's what Metaxas almost named his book, which I have sitting on the shelf behind me, Letter to the American Church. Check it out. I will hopefully be checking it out here shortly. Check out Proverbs 31 as well. I think there's a lot more there, a lot more rich food for thought that we would be nourished to consume. But I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.